Okay. Yes. So uh, today we have um, an opportunity to honor our lineage holder, Koben Chino Roshi, Phoenix Cloud, Phoenix Cloud, Phoenix Cloud lineage, yes. Um, <clears throat> and I, I want to uh, share with you and for you to share with everyone a remembrance uh, there uh, on the 20th, this is the 20th anniversary of Coben's death. Uh, he died um, saving his little daughter uh, who was drowning in a, yes, that was him. You may have heard of, of this. Uh, he didn't know how to swim, but he jumped into this pond to save his daughter and they both drowned. And so he left us, uh, as a matter of fact, if you, if you look through his uh, talks, um, he does foresee this uh, in a very bizarre and mystical way, though I'm not a mystical, I'm not in favor of the mystical teachings necessarily, <clears throat> but um, he, he speaks a lot <clears throat> about jumping into waters uh, to save beings. So it's a, it's, it's a beautiful story that this is the way he passed on. So uh, on the 20th anniversary, uh, on the 10th anniversary of his passing, there was a, a book <clears throat> put out of remembrances uh, of many of his students. Uh, I unfortunately never got to meet him <clears throat> um, when I was in residence in California. He was supposed to arrive about four or five times <laughs> to be with us. And in, a, in accord with his name of Cloud, Phoenix Cloud, <laughs> he would drift away. And we would make all these preparations to, for him to arrive and he never did. So I never got, I never got to meet him in person, uh, but I have studied with his Dharma heirs and studied, uh, and I have happened to be one of them at the moment. Um, and studied uh, his teachings. So um, I was hoping that uh, we could take one of these remembrances from <clears throat> one of his uh, Dharma heirs, Carolyn Atkinson, Atkinson, who is still alive. She still teaches in uh, Santa Cruz, California. And she has a beautiful remembrance of Coben. And I thought we could pass this book around and each of us could read, um, I think we have, I think there are 15 paragraphs and it's, we have sort of close to, to that. And those of you who are on Zoom, I uh, hope you can hear us. So when you're reading, please speak loud enough. Yeah, we can pass that along. Uh, so this is, um, this is from Carolyn Atkinson, who is a student uh, Dharma heir of Kobanchino Roshi's. And this is edited from, her book called A Light in the Mind. So let's begin. When 
When I first met Coben, it seemed to me that he was the complete embodiment of what I imagined it meant to be extraordinary. Here he was, this slight Japanese man moving so silently among us, except for his rustling robes. He chanted in ancient languages. He gazed at us with large, luminous eyes, and it felt to me as if merely by looking at me, he could penetrate into my very heart and mind. I thought he was incredibly exotic. He wore white tabi socks and carried a teaching stick. He'd grown up in a Zen temple family in Japan, and I learned that he'd begun to meditate when he was less than six years old. I think I believed that, by sim that simply by being in his presence, it would somehow help me transform my life into what I was longing for, something different from what I was, something extraordinary. I suspect many of us who were his students felt this way in the beginning. Fortunately for us, Kobun was an amazingly kind person. He didn't appear to take advantage of our adoration. He seemed very accepting of us at our little zendo in Santa Cruz. We were a motley gathering of hippies, graduate students, short order cooks and carpenters. And nevertheless, he was willing to be repeatedly present with us in our ordinary lives. He gave us the great gift of seeming to live his life in our midst. We were able to spend time with him when he was glorious and inspirational. And I think I felt inspired simply by being around him. In looking back on this time, I would guess that many of us felt touched by his reflected glory. But there was this also, because he was willing to stay connected with us slowly, gradually, by paying close attention, I could also begin to see not just the glory in his presence, but also sometimes the sadness in his eyes. Occasionally, he seemed isolated, even in the midst of many people. I began to notice that his life didn't always work out so perfectly. He too sometimes seemed to fall apart. He couldn't hold everything in his complicated world together all of the time. Apparently, life for him was also what we might call ordinary. It could be painful and difficult for him too. I experienced Cobble as being incredibly present and accepting, an amazingly kind man. I also realized gradually over the years that he was, just like all of us, a very ordinary, flawed human being. He made mistakes. He suffered. His life story looked quite different from most of ours in the details. More glamorous, it appeared. Perhaps, but it was the same in effect. An ordinary person living an ordinary life. I think this was his greatest gift to me, actually. Finally, understood that there was no other, more perfect life to reach beyond this common embodied experience. If Cobalt couldn't do it, if he couldn't attain a blissed out state of permanent wisdom 
and serenity that would protect him from pain in his life, that it was very unlikely that I would find such a place myself. When I recognized this, I saw that for me, there was nothing else to wait for. This life is it, right here and right now. I learned this in being with Coben. question that came up, of course, was, well, just how, well, just exactly how do we live these ordinary lives? What might this mean? How do we do this thing of being alive? It seemed to me that as a group of students around Kobun, we asked that question of him more frequently than we did any other. We phrased it in many different ways, but it usually came down to something like this. Kobun, why do we sit? Why do we do this practice? Why do we meditate? Over and over for 30 years or so, I heard us returning to this most basic question. In looking back at the many hours of listening to Colburn's talks, I have realized that much of the time, especially in the early years, I didn't understand what he was saying when he lectured. His language seemed to, my, seemed to me largely scholarly, and his conceptual framework was fairly abstract. I've noticed instead that I found the real importance of Corbin for me was in the way he lived with us. Still, as his student, I longed to understand what he was saying. When occasionally he would utter words that I could actually absorb, I felt how precious they were. In retrospect, it seems to me that over the years of his teaching, his English became much clearer. And for me, his expressions were increasingly less abstract and more grounded in his life experience. Here is the way he answered this question, why do we sit in the middle years of his teachings? The main subject of Dunkle is how to become a transmitter of actual light, life light. Practice takes place to shape your whole ability to reflect the light coming through you and to generate, to regenerate your system. So the light increases its power. That was very clear, a very clear image for me, one that I could understand and remember. I felt inspired by his words and I drew comfort and clarity from him. He truly did seem to lighten the world around him. In the 1980s, Coburn moved away from Northern California, from us, his students in the Bay Area, but he would sometimes come back, perhaps once a year, for a session. I carefully kept my calendar clear for his return, and I carved out the time to go see him. I found that I might have the opportunity to talk with him, perhaps for one hour a year, during that time when he was gone. That was all. I treasured that one precious hour so much. 
I would remember for months afterward what he had said to me. Then, in the 1990s, something amazing happened. He actually moved back into this area and lived quietly for several years, right here in Santa Cruz, up in the small community of Bonidon. He settled with his new wife and second family into a traditional style Japanese farmhouse, only about five minutes away from my home. It was quite startling and wonderful to have him so close once again. After he had been here for several months, I asked him if it would be all right to get the old timers together to meet him occasionally. He quietly nodded his assent. There were about 10 of us who had sat with him for many years, and we began to meet once a month on a Sunday afternoon at my house, just to have the opportunity to sit together again as a Sangha and to be with Coben. I look back now and I realize how unique this time was. To use Coben's own words, it was a rare and precious opportunity. We did this as a group for maybe a year and a half, perhaps two years, until Coben and his family moved to Colorado. Death, I have found, often comes unexpectedly. At our last meeting with Coven, we didn't know it was our last meeting at the time. Someone asked again that old familiar question, Coven, why do we sit? Why do we do this? At the final meeting for our old timers group, he once more gave us his answer, the last one I heard from him. It seemed to me that this response, response expressed his mature reflections gathered over a lifetime of living. What he said was concrete and easy to understand. And it was to my ears, humble and deeply touching. I don't know if anyone else wrote down his words, but I did as soon as I could find pencil and paper. I'd like to share his precious final response to our perennial question. Why do we do this practice? <laughs> you want me to keep going? Go for it. All right. We sit. Coven began slowly to make life meaningful. The significance of our life is not experienced in striving to create some perfect thing. He looked down at his hands as he spoke. He was quiet for a long time. Then he continued, we must simply start with accepting ourselves. Sitting brings us back to actually who and where we are. Again, he waited as he perhaps reflected upon his own life. This can be very painful. Self-acceptance is the hardest thing to do. Once again, he paused, so long at this point that I wondered if perhaps he had finished. But finally, he continued, if we can't accept ourselves, we are living in ignorance this darkest night. We may still be awake, but we don't know where we are. We cannot see. The mind has no light. He stopped and look, looked around us in our small circle. He moved from face to face with his eyes, seemingly to look deeply into each one of us, his longtime students. Finally, he nodded slightly and concluded, practice is this candle in our very darkest room.
nice, nice remembrance. Um, I want to just add uh, some brief comments about the right teacher. <clears throat> As we have seen in, in discussing the Eightfold Path, there are a lot of rights, right? Intention, right? Understanding, right? Speech, right? Uh, you know, right? Action, etc. Lots of rights. Here we have the right teacher. As we read in Coben's introduction this morning, one needs to have the right teacher. That's the one thing that can really harm you in this practice if you are guided in the wrong way, according to Coben. <clears throat> so what is the right teacher? Who is the right teacher? First of all, the right of the right teacher is not about an absolute right. There is no way of measuring what is right. What is the right teacher for you, for you? So right, as in all of the steps in the Eightfold Path, is to be considered as just right. Not right in a moral, sense that the, the teacher doesn't have to be as we see in this reminiscence. Coben was so-called flawed. He was an ordinary person with his, his life fell apart a number of times. And it was very obvious uh, to his students that his life had fallen apart. So it's not, it's not the, the rightness isn't that you're perfect by any means, that it, it's just the just right teacher and just right for you. So this is not, you know, you can take the most famous teacher in the world and that teacher may not be just right for you. So there is a term in, in Buddhist practice, a kind of an obscure term called inen which basically means there's a kind of affinity, a kind of coincidental, coincidentalarity of you meet a teacher and you, you spend some time with that teacher and you begin to feel this inen, this sense of, yeah, yeah, this, this is right. This is just right for me. And it may take a while to find that just right. But when you find it, you know it. As I have said with my guiding teacher, I actually have two guiding teachers. And I, I want to say briefly, uh, the first one is my sort of formal Zen teacher who I realized was my teacher one night when I was sitting in a cold zendo in California and someone entered the zendo 
And just prior to the close of the sitting period, I was alone in the Zendo. This person walked in, it was freezing cold and I was just practicing. And suddenly I feel a blanket around my shoulders. And my heart melted at that moment. I had no idea where that blanket came from. But after I let, exited the Zendo, the person who put that blanket around my shoulders followed me out and it was my guiding teacher. And at that moment I knew this was, this was the person I was going to study with. And it just came from that gesture. I just, that I knew it. But it took me a much longer time to find my other teacher, which is my tea teacher. I study ceremonial tea. And it took me a while to find him. And I would say that I like to, to um, kind of differentiate between what I call a granting teacher and a withholding teacher. Coben was a withholding teacher. What do I mean by that? And, and, and most of his Dharma heirs have followed in this, in this withholding. It's like, don't bother me. <laughs> uh, do your own thing. Um, I'm doing my thing. Do your thing. Constantly asking questions, avoiding answering, uh, being distant, being, being somehow inaccessible, letting you figure it out, not, not imposing anything on you. Quite the contrary. You're, you're, Following this teacher, I know one of my Dharma brothers uh, wanted desperately to have Coben be his teacher. And every time he tried to connect with Coben, Coben rejected him. He would hang up on him when he called. It, it, it's, that's a kind of tradition, a traditional form of teaching, Dharma teaching, withholding. Now I've got, I sometimes think of it as rabbinical. You know, a rabbi kind of sits up on, on, a, on a throne and all of his students kind of are around him and just so uh, grateful to just hear this, these little snippets of wisdom. So this is a distant teacher, a teacher that keeps withholding his or her affection, her involvement in your life. The other kind of teacher is the granting teacher. The teacher is like always there for you. I don't think I follow in, in that sense, I don't think I follow in Coben's lineage because I don't think I'm a withholding teacher. I think I'm probably overly granting. Um, someone who is just willing to spend instead of 15 minutes in a dokusan <laughs> and ring the bell and say, go your way, I will sit for an hour. <laughs> an hour and a half. Um, so this is, I sometimes call this a kind of Socratic method 
Socrates, Socrates regarded himself as a midwife in the form, in the way he taught. He, he, helped, he helped his students, his disciples, his, his students to give birth to their own inner wisdom. And in order to do this, you have to be pretty intimate. <laughs> you know, midwife is pretty intimate with the person giving birth. So, there, and, and I'm, I'm saying that this can be, since we're all teachers, this student-teacher relationship, granting, withholding, granting, withholding, is applicable to all of us in all of our relationships. Sometimes we have to be granting. Sometimes we have to be withholding. And the, the best teacher, and that's all of you, because we're always teaching in every relationship that we have, is to be just right. You know, just just the right amount of withholding and just the right amount of granting. And so there's this wonderful rhythm and it's hard to, it's hard to, um, it's hard to strike that skillful balance uh, with the people who we're trying to teach, our children, our, our beloveds in our lives, our friends, when, I'm there for you, I'm always there for you, but not now. <laughs> not now, this, this, is, this is your salad, uh, you know, you, you have to deal with it. And so this is a wonderful um, opportunity for us um, to, and of course this connects with what we're talking about uh, lately is our, the hindrances. Because when you, have a with, when you have a withholding friend or a withholding teacher or withholding family member, the tendency is to do as my Dharma brother did, chase after them, <laughs> you, know, you know, possess. Uh, I, I, you know, I, 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 want, I want to bring you close, you know? I, I, and the more they, they distance, the more you chase them and the more they run away. <laughs> and then there are other times when we become intimate with somebody and then we, begot, we, we begin to regard them as our possession. You know, God forbid they should <laughs> have a relationship beyond the one that we become very intimate with. So there's a lot of suffering embedded in this kind of attachment to your teacher, to your friends, to your to your loved ones. I'm gonna end with um, a story about my guiding teacher that um, I think is instructive. I've mentioned that he's a withholding teacher and very distant. Um, start with me lives 3000 miles away from me. So that's pretty distant. Uh, and then he never answers telephone calls. Uh, very rarely emails. Um, it's, it's really hard to, to connect with him uh, personally. One year he came to Oan to give a session uh, retreat. 
And he asked if, I, if he could use my computer. And I said, sure. So he got on, he wanted to check his email. <clears throat> so he got on my computer and he happened to fail to log out of my computer. So his email, all of his emails were available to me. And I thought, hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I sat in front of that computer for a good long while <laughs> with my finger poised um, <clears throat> to check out who he was emailing and what he had to say and what an opportunity to learn all of his secrets, <laughs> you know, all the things he, he was involved with. And I, I didn't, I didn't, <laughs> no, I was really tempted to, I didn't. And I didn't because it finally came to me that I did not want to violate the kind of teacher he was. I wanted to respect his way of teaching and not interfere with that. And it was my way of respecting him by not making him into something that I wanted. But in, in a sense, he was continuing to teach me, even though not directly. I'm not sure, maybe he left that open <laughs> on purpose, I doubt it. But it was a great teaching for me. And after that experience, I've often asked myself this question, how much do I really need to know? How much do I really need to know about someone? And I've had some very interesting answers to that question because our, our desire is this, this attachment to know more and more and more. And anytime some, we feel somebody is withholding, we want to keep pushing. And similarly, when we want to withhold, we ought to be respected for withholding what we need to withhold for whatever reason we have. So I want to honor, uh, <laughs> honor Coben by, in a sense, kind of stepping out of the lineage a bit and acknowledging the fact that I still have a ways to go to balance this granting, <laughs> this granting nature that I have with this withholding, which can also be a very profound teaching. And I think similarly in all of our lives to, to know that there are some things that are better left unknown and some things that really should be known that we want to withhold. So um, I, I hope that we can continue to discuss 
what it means to be the right teacher, not just as a Dharma teacher, but we're all Dharma teachers, but in, in, this relation, in these relationships we have in our lives, teaching and learning, teaching and learning, teaching. So Coben and his daughter, Maya, thank you. So now we can